0: To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddha where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Savadika,
1: hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon and English study group where we study the words of the Buddha using this book series titled, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. We're in volume 8 of this book, studying chapters 21 through 30. This book is titled, The Foremost Householders. This book has a collection of teachings specifically for household practitioners. All the other books are for household practitioners as well, but this is a nice collection of teachings that household practitioners are going to be particularly interested in, in order to help them on this path to enlightenment. Even ordained practitioners would really benefit from learning the teachings in this book as well. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today. The way that we start our class is we do a brief meditation at the beginning, just to kind of prepare the mind a little bit for the class to help you be able to retain the teachings of what we discuss in the class for longer periods of time. Then the moderators are gonna organize where we can have volunteers read through the various chapters of chapters 21 through 30. These are 10 chapters, and we'll be reading those in class today. And then afterwards, I'll teach a bit about each chapter and then open up to any questions that you have. The way that this program works is that students will read the chapters prior to class and then come to class with any questions that you might have to make it part of our discussion. If you're joining us for the first time or you haven't had a chance to read these chapters for any reason, it's okay because we're going to be reading them in class. It just produces a lot more benefit when you actually read prior to class because then you'll come to class with different questions and a certain perspective that you'll be able to seek clarity and guidance on any of the teachings that are in the book. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us for the first time or you've been joining us regularly, welcome to this class. If you'd like to go ahead and take a position for meditation, we'll go ahead and get started with that. And uh, as you may have heard me say in previous classes, I don't usually give much guidance around meditation in this class because people tend to be a bit further along and it's also a shorter meditation as well. So if you'd like to just go ahead and get in your meditation position, closing the eyes, i starting to breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. We'll start with some chanting just to kind of ease the mind into meditation. You're welcome to join in with the chants. And then I'll be back with just a little bit of guidance after the chanting.
2: Chanting. <laughs> Otaṃ <inaudible>
3: dama
2: <inaudible> <inaudible> Sopa-thipa-no-imha-ka-vato vato sava ka nama mi nap Nap-mur-ha-sa-bhāka-vato ara <Shrasana> Samma Putasam Napmurhasa Bhakavato Arato Samhasa Putasam Napmurhasa Bhakavato Arato Samhasa Sama-sambhutasam Iti-biso-mahagawa Ara-hang-sama-samhutau vichajaranang Saka to ANU we to Damasati Sattawa Manu Sana
1: Okay, you should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose just a nice gradual breath this guidance is just to help you along just remember this is your practice so the guidance that I'm providing isn't going to necessarily sync up to your breath so wherever you get to the next inhale Breathe in gradually through the nose, experiencing the full breath. And exhale through the nose. Fixate the mind on the breath. Whenever the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. No need to judge the thoughts, label them, even observe them or try to figure out where they're coming from. Just wherever you observe that the mind is not on the breath, cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in in out.
2: ara samastam PATHE It iti pisso sata Manu Sana all
1: right if you guys would like to just make your way out of meditation we'll be able to go ahead and start our class like to welcome anyone who joined us while we were meditating. So the way that we do this class is that somebody will read a chapter in the book. And as we follow along, we're all listening and learning with that. And then once they're done, I'll share some teachings related to that particular chapter. And then afterwards, We'll just open up to any questions that you have related to that particular chapter before we move on to the next one we'll go through all 10 chapters this way so i'll just turn things over to all of you specifically our moderators and uh, we can go ahead and move forward with today's class
4: yes teacher david uh, we'll
5: go to miranda to read the first chapter
1: all right thank you miranda
5: you're welcome, sir uh four ways of living together householders there are these four ways of living together what for a wretch lives together with a wretch a wretch lives together with a female heavenly being a heavenly being lives together with a wretch a heavenly being lives together with a female heavenly being and how householders does a wretch live together with a wretch here the husband is one who destroys life takes what is not given engages in sexual misconduct speaks falsely And indulges in liquor, wine, and intoxicants, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness. He is immoral, of unwholesome character. He resides at home with a mind obsessed by the stain of selfishness. He insults and degrades ascetics and brahmins. And his wife is also one who destroys life, takes what is not given, engages in sexual misconduct, speaks falsely, and indulges in liquor, wine, and intoxicants, The basis for heedlessness. She is immoral, of unwholesome character. She resides at home with a mind obsessed by the stain of selfishness. She insults and degrades ascetics and Brahmins. It is in such a way that a wretch lives together with a wretch. And how does a wretch live together with a female heavenly being? Here the husband is one who destroys life, takes what is not given, engages in sexual misconduct, speaks falsely and indulges in liquor wine and intoxicants the basis for heedlessness he is immoral of unwholesome character he resides at home the mind obsessed by the stain of selfishness he insults and degrades ascetics and brahmins but his wife is one who abstains from the destruction of life from taking what is not given from sexual misconduct from false speech and from liquor wine and intoxicants the basis for heedlessness she is virtuous practicing moral conduct of wholesome character she resides at home with a mind free from the stain of selfishness she does not insult or degrade ascetics and brahmins. it is in such a way that a wretch lives together with a female heavenly being and how does a heavenly being live together with a wretch here the husband is one who abstains from the destruction of life from taking what it is not given from sexual misconduct, from false speech, and from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. He is virtuous, of wholesome character. He resides at home with a mind free from the stain of selfishness. He does not insult or degrade ascetics and Brahmins. But his wife is one who destroys life, takes what is not given, engages in sexual misconduct, speaks falsely, and indulges in liquor, wine, and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. She is immoral, of unwholesome character. She resides at home with a mind obsessed by the stain of selfishness. She insults and degrades ascetics and brahmins. It is in such a way that a heavenly being lives together with a wretch. And how does a heavenly being live together with a female heavenly being? Here, the husband is one who abstains from the destruction of life, from taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, from false speech, and from liquor, wine, and intoxicants basis for heedlessness. He is virtuous, a wholesome character. He resides at home with a mind free from the stain of selfishness. He does not insult or degrade ascetics and rums. And his wife is also one who abstains from the destruction of life, from taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, from false speech, and from liquor, wine, and intoxicants. The basis for heedlessness. She is virtuous. Of wholesome character she resides at home with a mind free from the stain of selfishness she does not insult or degrade ascetics and brahmins. it is in such a way that a heavenly being lives together with a female heavenly being these are the four ways of living together when both are unwholesome selfish and abusive husband and wife live together as wretches the husband is wholesome selfish and abusive but his wife is virtuous charitable generous she is a female heavenly being living with a wretched husband the husband is virtuous charitable generous but his wife is unwholesome selfish and abusive she is a wretch living with a heavenly being husband both husband and wife are enriched with confidence charitable and mentally disciplined living their lives righteously addressing each other with pleasant words then many benefits accumulate to them and they reside at ease Their enemies are saddened when both are the same in virtue moral conduct having practiced the teachings here the same virtuous behavior and observances delighting after death in a heavenly world they rejoice enjoying sensual pleasures
1: all right thank you miranda so here as i mentioned at the beginning of class this book is providing guidance to household practitioners of how to essentially live a better life together because this path to enlightenment when the Buddha awoke from enlightenment, he didn't say he discovered a new religion. He said, I discovered a better way of life. And this is the better way of life that he's sharing all throughout his teachings. And one of those aspects that he's sharing here is how to live peacefully and at ease with your life partner. And if both people are practicing the teachings that the Buddha is sharing here, which is essentially the five precepts with some generosity and moral conduct and things like that then what he ultimately gets to is says that beings that practice in this way accumulate to them and they reside at ease their enemies are saddened when both are the same in virtue or moral conduct and then he goes on to explain here that yes at death these two beings would rejoice and they would be potentially reborn into this heavenly realm and from there those beings are enjoying central pleasures and just having exclusively pleasant feelings but always keep in mind that that's not the goal of Gautama Buddha's teachings he's just sharing what will happen if two individuals are living together they don't get to enlightenment but yet they're living their life in this way that he describes which is abstaining from the destruction of life from taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, from false speech, and from substances that cause heedlessness. Those are the five precepts. And then the virtuous moral conduct, that's right speech, right action, and right livelihood from the full path. That's the wholesome character. And then with a mind free from the stain of selfishness, that would be a practitioner who's practicing generosity. Because if we're selfish and we're holding on to things really tight, then we're not practicing generosity by living open-handedly. By living open-handedly and being generous with our time, effort, energy, and resources, it helps us to eliminate craving, but it also helps us to cultivate healthy relationships around us as well. And then the last thing about not insulting or degrading people who are sharing these teachings as aesthetics or brahmin because these are people who are trying to do good in the world they're trying to help others to learn and practice these teachings so if somebody's not insulting them then they're practicing this good wholesome virtuous moral conduct and these two people as husband husband wife wife husband wife uh, living together they would have a very wholesome life together and they would as the Buddha describes here, greet each other or talk with pleasant words, I think he says somewhere. I think that's really nice. It's somewhere either up there or down below. Because when you're practicing this way in your home and there's not craving, desire, attachment, there's not this anger, this ill will, this hatred, or this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, you can talk with your partner in very wholesome ways. You know, There's no harsh words between the two of you when you are practicing really well. But if two people are still on the path, of course, even when they're enlightened, they're on the path. But if they haven't quite got to enlightenment yet, there might be a harsh look. There might be some harsh words between each other. But what would you like to do is you would like to purge all of that out of your relationship so that you guys are speaking pleasantly with each other. And the other aspect of this is if you see that you are with somebody who is what the Buddha is describing as a wretch. Here, he's talking about a husband who does destroy life, who does steal, who does engage in sexual misconduct, who does lie, who does take substances that cause heedlessness, who is immoral, unwholesome character, someone who's obsessed by the stain of selfishness and insults and degrades aesthetics and Brahman. If you're in that kind of relationship, you might need to decide, you know, is it, wise for you to stay in that relationship and try to help that person along or is it better for you to maybe move on from the relationship if you're able to and you can make wise decisions in that direction to gradually move away so this teaching is helping you to see what would be ideal is two people living together in this wholesome way but then he's also showing the other side of that too and you would aspire to have a relationship where both of you are practicing really well because this is going to create ease and comfort in your home together, that you guys are living at ease and peacefully with each other. Questions on this chapter?
4: Yes, we'll go to Nick. Thank you, Manal. Good evening, Teacher David.
1: Um, I have a
6: question at the beginning about each one of these starts, here the husband or here the wife, Is one who destroys life. I was wondering if you'd be so kind to explain what the Buddha um, meant by this. Is it the first precept in full detail? Like, um, are we not just talking about, or are we just talking about murderers or things like um, eating meat or, you know, swatting a fly with a fly swatter instead of, you know, trying to get it outside? I was wondering what level of detail the Buddha is trying to explain about destroying
1: life. Yeah, so what he's doing here is he's pointing back to the five precepts because the five precepts have the full detail. But rather than go through the entire detail of the five precepts every single time that he's teaching something like this, he'll just say it in summary like this. So you should look back to the five precepts to flush this out and understand that when he's talking about one who destroys life, he's talking about the first precept. Uh, when he says, takes what is not given, he's talking about the second precept, but rather than say the whole thing, he's just pointing to it in a summary fashion.
4: It doesn't appear there are any other questions.
1: All right. So we'll go to chapter 22, six aspects of karma to be understood. This one was studied in volume six when we studied the natural law of gamma, but it's probably a good refresher. We've had... Some people join us since then, and this really helps you to understand the various details of the natural law of Kama.
4: Go to Jan.
7: Thank you, Minal. Six aspects of Kama to be understood. Monks, when it was said Kama should be understood, the creation of Kama should be understood, the diversity of Kama should be understood, the result of Kama should be understood, The elimination of the creation of kama should be understood. The way leading to the elimination of unwholesome kama should be understood. For what reason was this said? One, it is volition, choices, decisions, monks, that I call kama, for having willed choices, decisions, when acts by body, speech, or mind. Two, and what is the creation of kama? Contact is its creation. Three, and what is the diversity of Kama? There is Kama to be experienced in hell. There's Kama to be experienced in the animal realm. There is Kama to be experienced in the realm of afflicted spirits. There is Kama to be experienced in the human realm. And there is Kama to be experienced in the heavenly realm, this is called the diversity of Kama. Four, and what is the result of Kama? The result of Kama I say is threefold. To be experienced in this very life or in the next rebirth or on some subsequent occasion this is called the result of kama five and what monks is the elimination of the creation of kama with the elimination of contact there is elimination of the creation of kama six this noble eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of unwholesome karma, namely right view right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. When monks, a noble disciple thus understands kama, the creation of kama, the diversity of kama, the result of kama, the elimination of the creation of kama, and the way leading to the elimination of unwholesome kama, he understands is. Penetrative spiritual life to be the elimination of unwholesome karma. When it was said, karma should be understood, the creation of karma should be understood, the diversity of karma should be understood, the result of karma should be understood, the elimination of the creation of karma should be understood, the way leading to the elimination of unwholesome karma should be understood. It is because of this that this was said.
1: All right. Thank you, Jan. So when you're first starting to learn the path to enlightenment you understand kind of generally about the natural law of gamma of cause and effect action result, or the results of our decisions it's our life it's our decisions it's our results that's our gamma it's not punishment and rewards it's just the results of our decisions you know if you're polite kind friendly and respectful you're gonna have lots of friends people are going to be interested in spending time with you where if you're impolite unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, you're going to have a real challenge because people aren't going to really be interested to be around you. That's the natural law of gamma, just real short and simple. And what the Buddhist teachings is doing all the way throughout his teachings is he's pulling back the covers, exposing the natural law of gamma to you more and more so that you can see it very clearly. And here in this particular teaching, he's really exposing the heart of the natural law of gamma and explaining to you, some very intricate details related to the law of karma itself, as opposed to, you know, talking about the five precepts, for example, is providing you moral conduct and other guidance of things you can improve in your life practice and certain decisions to make to ensure you're not causing harm. Here, he's explaining the individual details of how that all comes to be. So this first one where he says it's volition or choices and decisions that he calls karma. So having willed, by acting by body speech and mind that's how we create gamma by our bodily actions by certain speech and by things that are happening in the mind this is how gamma gets created when we will or have intention there has to be intention in order for there to be gamma so when you're walking down the street and you accidentally step on an ant you haven't created unwholesome gamma in that situation because there wasn't any intention you haven't willed that. It was just you were walking down the street and you stepped on an ant. Whereas if you were walking down the street intentionally stomping your feet and you know scrubbing out the ants and different insects, this is the hatred. This is the anger coming through your intention. And now your bodily action is such that you're now killing. So there's going to be unwholesome gamma as a result of that. So... That first precept, for example, is all about not killing and not destroying life. And it's there to help us to eliminate anger, hatred and ill will from the mind. So if we just happen to be walking down the street and there's an insect that ends up under our foot, we haven't willed that decision. We haven't made that decision. We're just walking down the street. So this also applies to things like if people say to you, you know, oh, well, if you're vegan or if you're eating plant-based food, aren't the insects dying as part of, you know, harvesting the food? Well, yeah, and that's their gamma for being insects, but that's not the intention. We're harvesting the food and the insects are dying as part of that. The precept isn't preserve all life at all cost. The precept is live compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. So if you're walking down the street or you're harvesting Vegetables and insects happen to die as part of that. You haven't willed that, so therefore, there's not unwholesome gamma. You haven't been practicing anger, hatred, and ill will in that situation, so therefore, that's not your intention. Whereas, if you intentionally go around killing animals, destroying life, then that's where there's going to be unwholesome gamma related to that particular precept. The second one here is in what is the creation of gamma? Creation of gamma is through contact through physical contact or through verbal contact or interacting with people. And this is really important because you can't create gamma if there's not contact. So using the same example of destroying life, if you haven't come in contact with another being and you haven't destroyed the life, you can't create gamma. If somebody else has contact with a being and they kill somebody, that's their gamma. Or a situation if you were in a conversation with somebody And let's just say the conversation becomes heated and you're arguing while you're sitting there arguing and you have contact. You're creating unwholesome gamma and understanding that contact is what creates gamma. Then in that situation, realizing that your mind is angered and frustrated the way that you can stop the creation of gamma in that situation is to break contact, eliminate contact, is go away from that person. And maybe you need to gather your mind for an hour or two or a day or two before you can start having that conversation again. So when you're in a situation where you see that frustration or anger is arising in the mind, understanding this level of detail with gamma, then you can make the wise decision to separate and eliminate contact. And then you know that Kama isn't being created in that situation. And then this diversity of gamma, this is the Buddha explaining that basically all five realms, hell, animal, afflicted spirit, human realm, and heavenly realm, all those realms, we experience gamma. As long as there's existence, there's continuous rebirth, and there's going to be existence in one of these five realms, there's gamma that's going to need to be experienced. You're not actually going to escape this cycle of rebirth until you extinguish All unwholesome Kama. Once you extinguish all unwholesome Kama, the mind is enlightened and now there's no longer going to be existence in any of these five realms. So therefore you won't experience any more unwholesome Kama for the rest of your life and there won't be rebirth for you to experience any Kama in any of these realms because you've already extinguished all your unwholesome Kama. Here number four, the Buddha is explaining that Kama is threefold to be experienced in this life the next life or some subsequent occasion, which means some rebirth beyond that. Essentially, this is like saying, you can't run and hide from your karma. If you make unwholesome decisions, you're going to experience the results of that. There's no way to hide from that. That's what this number four is all about. Then number five, the elimination of the creation of karma. Here, the Buddha is explaining what I just explained with the other one. Is that with the elimination of contact, there is the elimination of the creation of gamma. So you can't create either wholesome gamma or unwholesome gamma if you don't have contact. So you need to have contact in order for a gamma to be created. And then number six, the way that you eliminate unwholesome gamma is the eightfold path. Because by you producing only wholesome decisions through practicing the eightfold path, you're making more and more and more wise and wholesome decisions eventually you extinguish all your unwholesome gamma. Because prior to getting on this path, you were making certain decisions without understanding this Eightfold Path. Some of those decisions were wholesome. Some of them were not because you just didn't have the wisdom of this Eightfold Path. But even as you gradually make your way to practicing this path entirely, you're still going to be making some unwholesome decisions along the way. It's not until you're fully practicing the Eightfold Path for an extended period of time that you're making nothing but wholesome decisions. And now as these unwholesome decisions from the past are coming back to you, you start handling them and addressing them through the Eightfold Path instead of before where maybe something would come back to you and you would create more unwholesome decisions on top of unwholesome decisions on top of unwholesome decisions. You can unravel all of this by gradually making your way up to fully practicing the Eightfold Path, then practice that for an extended period of time, multiple years, and then you're burning off all your unwholesome decisions from the past. Anything that's coming back to you, you just handle it through the Eightfold Path and you extinguish your unwholesome gama that way. And now you're only producing wholesome gama. And the Buddha explains this here where he says, a noble disciple, which a noble disciple is someone who's deeply practicing and is really close to understanding the teachings and a really dedicated student, essentially. A really dedicated student or a noble disciple understands Kama, the creation of Kama, the diversity, the result, the elimination of the creation of Kama and the way leading to the elimination of unwholesome Kama. And he understands this penetrative spiritual life to be the elimination of of unwholesome karma so you need to understand that your goal here in order to get to enlightenment is to eliminate unwholesome karma and the way to do that is through the full path so if you're speaking harsh if you're speaking aggressive if you're doing unwholesome things you can't run and hide from that it's all going to come back to you at some point understanding this then you would aim to bring your practice up to the full path Practicing that as perfectly as possible for an extended period of time, and that's where you'll see that the condition of the mind in the condition of your life will just get more and more peaceful, calm, and content with joy because you're no longer producing any harm in the world, so therefore harm isn't coming back to you. And life becomes very, very peaceful because your mind is so well trained that it's not being affected by what other people say and do but you're also not putting out any harm. So no harm is coming back to you. So you don't have to deal with all these difficulties and struggles in life because everything that you're choosing to do, every decision you make is wholesome. Therefore, nothing but wholesomeness comes back to you. Any questions on this chapter? It
4: doesn't appear to be any questions.
1: All right. So we'll go to 23, which is another teaching about the natural law of gamma, one that we've covered before, but it's always nice to have a nice refresher.
4: We'll go to Nick.
1: Thank you, Raul. The simile of a lump of salt.
6: Monks, if one were to say thus, a person experiences Kama in precisely the same way that he created it. In such a case, there could be no living of the spiritual life, and no opportunity would be seen for completely making an end of discontentedness. But if one were to say thus, when a person creates Kama, that is to be experienced in a particular way, he experienced its results precisely in that way. In such a case, the living of the spiritual life is possible and an opportunity is seen for completely making an end of discontentedness. Here, monks, some person has created a small amount of unwholesome Kama yet it leads him to hell. While some other person here has created exactly the same amount, exactly the same small amount of comma, yet it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less plentiful. What kind of person creates a small amount of unwholesome comma that leads him to hell? Here, some person is undeveloped in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom. He is limited, and it has a mean character, and he dwells in discontentedness. When such a person creates a small amount of unwholesome karma, it leads him to hell. What kind of person creates exactly the same small amount of unwholesome karma, and yet it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less plentiful? Here, some person has developed in body, virtuous behavior, mind, and wisdom. He is unlimited and has a lofty character, and he resides without measure. When such a person creates exactly
2: the same amount of unwholesome karma, it is to be experienced in this very
6: life without even a slight residue being seen, much less plentiful. Suppose a man would drop a lump of salt into a small bowl of water. What do you think, monks? Would that lump of salt make the small quantity of water in the bowl salty and undrinkable? Yes, venerable sir. For what reason? Because the water in the bowl is limited, thus a lump of salt would make it salty and undrinkable. But suppose a man would drop a lump of salt into the river Ganges. What do you think, monks? Would that lump of salt make the river Ganges become salty and undrinkable? No, venerable sir. For what reason? Because the river Ganges contains a large volume of water. Thus that lump of salt would not
2: make it salty and undrinkable. So too, monks, some person here has created a small amount of unwholesome
6: comma, yet it leads him to hell. While some other person here has created exactly the same small amount of comma, Yet it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less abundant. Here, monks, someone is in prison for stealing half a capanna, which is a coin, a capanna or a hundred capannas, while someone else is not in prison for stealing the same amount of money. What kind of person is in prison for stealing half a capanna, a capanna or a hundred capannas? Here, someone is poor with little property and wealth. Such a person is imprisoned for stealing half a capanna, a capanna, or a hundred capanna's. What kind of person is not in prison for stealing half a capanna, a capanna, or a hundred capanas? Here, someone is rich with much money and wealth. Such a person is not imprisoned for stealing half a capanna, a capanna, or a hundred capanas so too monks some person has created a small amount of unwholesome comma yet it leads him to hell while some other person here has created exactly the same small amount of comma yet it is to be experienced in this very life, without even a slight residue being seen much less abundant monks take the case of a sheep merchant or a butcher who can execute Imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize someone who has stolen one of his sheep but can't do so to someone else who has stolen his sheep. What kind of person can the sheep merchant or butcher execute, imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize for stealing a sheep? One who is poor with little property and wealth, the sheep merchant or butcher can execute, imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize such a person for stealing a sheep? What kind of person can't the sheep merchant or butcher execute, imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize for stealing a sheep? One who is rich, with a lot of money and wealth, a king or royal minister, the sheep merchant or butcher can't execute, imprison, fine, or otherwise penalize such a person for stealing a sheep. He can only plead with him, Sir, return my sheep or pay me for it. So too, monks, some person has created a small amount of unwholesome karma, yet it leads him to hell. While some other person here has created exactly the same small amount of karma, yet it is to be experienced in this very life without even a slight residue being seen, much less abundant. If, monks, one were to say thus, a person experiences karma in precisely the same way that he created it, in such a case there could be no living of the spiritual life and no opportunity would be seen for completely making an end of discontentedness. But if one were to say thus, when a person creates karma that is to be experienced in a particular way, he experienced its results precisely in that way, In such a case, the living of the spiritual life is possible and an opportunity is seen for completely making an end of discontentedness.
1: All right. Thank you, Nick. So here, let's focus on the lump of salt. I think this really helps to bring this chapter into focus because what the Buddha is essentially saying here is that someone who does a whole lot of wholesome things and then they do a little bit of unwholesome things, they're not going to be affected as significantly as someone who does very little wholesome things and then does some unwholesome things. The water is representative of the wholesome things. The salt is representative of the unwholesome things. So if someone has very little water, this bowl of water, and there's this lump of salt that's put into the bowl of water, then he says, you can't drink this water. It's too salty. But if somebody has this enormous amount of water, like the river Granges, then that's all the wholesomeness that someone has done, all that water. And you put that same lump of salt, that same amount of unwholesome gamma in that situation, in that person's life, then that person's not going to be as affected as greatly. And this is why you see in certain situations, some people are more affected by doing exactly the same thing. Two individuals can be affected very differently. And if you've ever been to a criminal court or something like this, you can see that this is how judges actually make decisions. Oftentimes when judges are presented with a criminal case, someone's found guilty, they will look at the person's previous record. If someone doesn't really have any previous charges, they will typically let them off pretty easily with not too many penalties. But if someone has this long list of criminal charges, that they've committed crimes in the past, even for the same exact problem, the same exact crime, they will punish this person more significantly. And that's because of the amount of wholesomeness versus unwholesomeness that we produce. So no matter what you've experienced in the past, no matter how much unwholesomeness you've created in the past, What you're doing now as part of the Eightfold Path is you're working to produce more and more and more and more and more wholesomeness. And what you'll find is as you do that more and more and more in your life and you create some of these unwholesome decisions because you're not fully practicing the Eightfold Path, they're not going to affect you as significantly as they would have if you were not practicing these wholesome teachings and you had a lot of unwholesomeness in your life. So as you ramp up, you expand more and more and more, a lot of wholesome decisions in your life. And then you'll see that, yes, you'll still have challenges. You'll still have missteps in life, so to speak. You'll still be making unwise decisions in certain situations, producing unwholesome karma. but it won't affect you as significantly as perhaps in a situation where you were producing a whole lot of unwholesome karma in your life. Any questions on this chapter?
4: Um, Yes, teacher David, um, if we can go to the second-to-last paragraph in this chapter, um, related to a person experiences, so uh, what I'm interpreting is that a person does not experience kama in precisely the same way that he or she created it. Is that because that, that is the case because Opportunity needs to be given to see one's, um, um, you know, action and speech, etc. Is that because opportunity needs to arise in in order to interpret what is happening? So that gap between if Kama was um, precisely the same way that a person created it, there would be no chance for someone to realize or have an opportunity to make better of the situation. Is that correct?
1: Actually, this is related to that amount of wholesomeness that we create. So if person A has a whole lot of wholesomeness and person B has very little wholesomeness, the same exact decision of something unwholesome is going to be experienced differently. It's not going to be experienced precisely the same way. So that's why the Buddha is saying here that if they were to be experienced exactly the same way, there's no opportunity to make an end to discontentedness because you wouldn't be able to extinguish your unwholesome karma. Because two people making the same exact decision to do something unwholesome, if it's experienced in exactly the same way coming back to them, then those two people, they're not going to be able to create an end or eliminate or extinguish this unwholesome karma in the same way. Because it doesn't happen this way it doesn't happen precisely the same way for two people so this is why in another teaching that the Buddha shares he shares that we shouldn't try to discern or determine the exact result of gamma because he says this would cause frustration or madness if you tried to determine the exact result of your gamma so Two different people are going to experience Gamma in different ways. There's a lot of dependencies and a lot of variables. And that's why he's saying that it's not experienced and created in exactly the same way. So therefore, if that was the case, you wouldn't be able to eliminate your discontentedness. But because that isn't the case, that's the second paragraph. Because that isn't the case, he's saying that we can end our discontentedness.
4: Okay. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying So this. this is all relative to unwholesome or wholesome gamma production. And that's why you can't compare, um, you know, exacting um, someone's action to a comma.
1: Right. You can't look and at something wholesome. and say, okay, you know, Manal went out of her house and stomped on an ant and killed it. Nick went out of his house and stomped on an ant and killed it. But these two people are going to experience that gamma in different ways because of the decisions that they've made in terms of the amount of wholesomeness that they've already got in their life. They're going to experience the results of that same stomping on the end, intentionally stomping on it. They're going to experience that in different ways because of the amount of wholesomeness that they have practiced in the past.
4: Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. We'll go to Marcy. She has a question.
5: Thank you, teacher David. Thank you, Manal. Um, Actually, teacher David, you just answered my question, but just to make sure that I understand it correctly, it's basically the amount of our
0: wholesome comma that we have created that perpetually will determine or influence um, our unwholesome comma that we have
5: and how it affects us, whether it be like an immediate effect towards towards us, or if it's something that uh, we will have to arise an opportunity later on to create Um, a situation where we can um, eliminate it. Am I correct in that?
1: Exactly. Exactly. And you can see this like in a work environment, right? Like if, if you're making all kinds of really wise, wholesome decisions and your boss and your supervisors and your coworkers know that you're really wholesome and you make one little unwholesome decision... That's going to affect you differently than this other person who's always making unwholesome decisions, always in trouble. They can do exactly the same thing and they might get fired from their job where you maybe just get a little bit of a talking to, right? So how we experience our karma is going to be relative to other decisions that we've made. There's multiple variables involved. And this is why you shouldn't ever try to wrap your mind around exactly what the results of your Decisions are going to be. You need to have a general understanding, which is what the Buddha teaches as part of his teaching, so that you can improve your karma and you don't make decisions that lead to unwholesome karma, but you're only making wise decisions that lead to wholesome karma. So you need to have a general understanding of those things. But if you get obsessed about trying to figure out exactly what's going to happen, that's where the Buddha says, okay, that's going to lead to madness or frustration. He says this in another teaching. So here, he's helping you to see the reason why that you can't really determine the exact result of gamma because there's other variables involved aside from just what did you do in this one particular instance. Thank you, teacher David. You're welcome.
4: There are no other questions for this chapter.
1: Okay, so we'll go to chapter 24.
4: Go to Jan. Thank you.
7: The elimination of unwholesome karma and the noble eightfold path. Monks, this noble eightfold path is the way leading to the elimination of unwholesome karma, namely right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration.
1: Right. So thank you, Jan. This is You know, just really targeted, you know, extracted out of a longer discourse where we often talk about the full path and that this is the path to enlightenment. And the reason why is because you're extinguishing all your unwholesome karma. You're no longer practicing wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood, wrong effort, wrong mindfulness, and wrong concentration. Instead, what the Buddha is exposing to you in the Eightfold Path is he's exposing the, the natural law of gamma. That's what that Eightfold Path is explaining to you, is that in order to move the mind in your life towards this enlightened mental state, then he's exposing to you all the intricate details of how one would practice. And that's why you don't believe the Eightfold Path, you learn it, reflect on it, and practice it. And by you making decisions through that guidance in the Eightfold Path, that's where your life and the condition of your mind gradually improve because you're extinguishing all these unwholesomeness that we've made decisions in the past. Namely, we're eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance out of the mind because We've made decisions in the past based on our lack of wisdom, our ignorance or unknowing of true reality that we're holding on to craving, anger and ignorance. But then as you start moving on this path, you start learning, reflecting and practicing, you're choosing to actively eliminate craving, anger and ignorance and start arising generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And it's the Eightfold Path that's helping you to purify the mind and purify your life so that your choices are now being made through the Eightfold Path. And this is what's extinguishing all your unwholesome gamma. I sometimes use the analogy of a garden hose. If you think about this garden hose, that it's packed with all this mud. And this mud is all the unwholesome decisions we're making in the past. Well, now as you start learning and practicing this eightfold path and you start practicing it to perfection this is like putting pure water into the garden hose you turn on the garden hose with all this pure water well it's going to spit muddy water for a while it's going to spit lots of muddy water because there's still this unwholesome gamma coming back to you but over time you're going to get to the point where it spits a little muddy water and then it spits some clean water then it spits some muddy water and it spits some clean water. And this is still your unwholesome kama coming back to you. But you need to keep practicing the wholesomeness and keep continuing to make wholesome decisions. And then eventually, you put enough wholesome, pure water into this garden hose. Eventually, all the mud is out of the hose and all you get is pure water coming out the other end. And that's the same thing with your life, that as you're making more and more wholesome decisions, You're going to have some unwholesomeness coming back to you here and there as you get ramped up on this practice. But then if you handle that in a really wise way, eventually you'll get all the mud cleaned out. All these unwholesome decisions will get cleaned out. And now you're doing nothing but wholesome things, wholesome decisions. And now your mind is pure. The life and the decisions that you're making in your life are pure. And you'll see that things will just be very, very peaceful in your life because you're no longer causing harm through any of your decisions so harm isn't coming back to you. So this is the Buddha pointing to the Eightfold Path, making sure you understand that that's what you need to practice in order to extinguish all your unwholesome karma. Questions on this?
4: There are no questions for this chapter.
1: All right, chapter
3: 25.
4: Buddha Dhani next.
3: At minimum, leads to deeds, But the destruction of life Repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, the destruction of life at minimum leads to a short lifespan. Taking what is not given, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, Taking what is not given at minimum leads to loss of wealth. Sexual misconduct repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, sexual misconduct at minimum leads to hostility and competition. For speech, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated leads to hell, to the animal realm, and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, false speech, at minimum, leads to false accusations. Argumentative speech, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, argumentative speech, at minimum, leads to being separated from one's friends. Harsh speech, repeated, pursued, developed, and cultivated, leads to hell, to the animal realm and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, harsh speech at minimum leads to disagreeable sounds. Idle chatter, repeatedly pursued, developed and cultivated leads to hell. to the animal realm and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one reborn as a human being, idle chatter at minimum leads to others, distrusting one's words. Drinking liquor and wine, Ingestion of substances that cause heedlessness, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated to help to the animal realm and to the realm of afflicted spirits. For one, reborn born as a human being, drinking liquor and wine at minimum leads to madness.
1: All right. Thank you, Dani. This is a very unique teaching from the Buddha because oftentimes we see him teaching things like, you know, the five precepts or the eightfold path, sharing guidance of what we need to be practicing in our life. But here he's actually sharing the results of not practicing those teachings. And it's very important to note that he's not trying to guilt, shame, or fear anybody into practicing his teachings. You can see that he's just clearly saying what's going to happen. He's just saying the truth. He's not you know, trying to persuade or force or pressure anybody or anything. He's just speaking the truth of what will and will not happen. But you don't believe what he's sharing here. Remember, you shouldn't believe. You learn, reflect, and practice. So you take something like this one, this first paragraph, and then you can do this with all the others as well, is the destruction of life, repeatedly pursued, developed, cultivated, leads to hell, animal realm, in the realm of afflicted spirits. Well, you don't necessarily have a way to confirm that unless you have observed your past lives and you know what you've done in those past lives and where you were reborn. These realms of existence, these three are what we call the lower realms. And once you're reborn there, it's like being trapped in a prison. It's very difficult to get out. Those beings will get out eventually, but it takes a lot of rebirth in the realm of hell animal realm and the realm of afflicted spirits in order to actually get back to a human birth. But someone who destroys life and actually murders, they can actually still be reborn back into the human realm. That's what the Buddha is explaining here, because everybody experiences gamma differently. It's not that everybody who kills automatically goes to one particular realm. It's not this black and white, this permanence. It all depends on what else is going on in one's life. But the Buddha explains here, this next part where you can reflect on this and you can observe it, is that for one reborn as a human being, the destruction of life at minimum leads to a shorter lifespan. So here you can look in the world around you about people who destroy life and you can look at their lifespan and you can say, OK, let's look at people who are murderous or who kill not just what we would consider an illegal killing or a murder, but this is all killing. You know, if soldiers are sent off into battle, while their government may not prosecute them for murder when they come back home, they're still destroying life. So when you look at something like this, you look at all destruction of life. So soldiers who go off into war, they typically have a short lifespan. They will sometimes get killed in war itself or They will have injuries or difficulties such that when they come back home, they will either get killed or they will kill themselves or they will have a shorter lifespan because they've been injured in war, for example. This is just one example because oftentimes we associate going off to war in battle as, yeah, that's okay because our government is allowing us to do that. But see, the natural law of gamma doesn't function that way. It doesn't function based on human decisions in terms of you know, whether we get punished in a court or not. What the Buddha is showing you here is that someone who destroys life is going to have a shorter lifespan. And now when you understand that, then that's where you would make a wise decision to not do that, to not destroy life. And that would be really wise. And you can look not just at soldiers, but look at government leaders that we've had in the past or, you know, leaders of entire countries who've been murderous or killing And look at their life and look how their life was short. So you can see this and observe this in the world around you. You don't have to believe what the Buddha is sharing here. You can learn it, reflect on it, and then start improving your practice based on this. And then you can see these other things. You know, if you've ever stolen, and then, you know, what happens when you steal, right? If you've stolen in the past and you got away with it. Now, later on, what's going to happen? Well, there's going to be situations where you're going to lose wealth as well. I mean, you might have experienced that in your life where you didn't necessarily get caught with every single time you stole, but then something happens later in life and you end up losing your wealth as part of that. Same thing, sexual misconduct. If you've ever been someone who has practiced sexual misconduct or you know other people that have, look at your life at that time or look at that person's life. There was this hostility and competition. And we can go through all of these and essentially do the same thing, but this is what you would do on your own in order to for you to firmly root in the mind and develop this confidence that, yes, these are things that I'm not interested in doing. I'm not interested in destroying life. I'm not interested in stealing. I'm not interested in sexual misconduct, having false speech, argumentative speech, Harsh speech, idle chatter, or taking substances that cause heedlessness, because I've independently verified on my own by looking around in my own life and in other people's life that the Buddha is indeed speaking the truth here. So if you've ever been indulgent in substances that cause heedlessness, did it lead to madness? You would know that if you've experienced that, or if you've ever observed other people. So this part about the individual realms, if you haven't seen your past lives, you'll need to take the Buddha on his word there. You know, all these other teachings that he's sharing, that is so much the truth and leading you to a better and better condition of mind. There might be certain situations like this where if you haven't seen your past lives, it's like, all right, we'll take him on his face value. He obviously didn't just slip this in here because all the other things that he's teachings are describing are 100% the truth. So that's what this one is all about. Questions on this particular teaching?
4: Yes, teacher David. Um, Not um, in the example given in this chapter, but is there anything fundamentally unwholesome about having competition or having competitive spirit as described or taught by the Buddha?
1: in terms of being competitive you know we can have fun and we can compete but the challenge becomes when the mind has such craving desire attachment that it leads to unskillful conduct which we would call you know bad sportsmanship you know there's no harm in two teams coming together and competing with each other but we still need to practice good moral conduct and virtuous behavior during that situation and realize like this is just a a way to kind of motivate us in order to do good things. So one of the things that my son and I like to watch is there's this thing called battle bots where teams make robots and then they go into arena and then these robots fight each other and they try to destroy the other robot. You know, there's no harm in doing this, but if it leads to unskillful conduct and unskillful behaviors, that's where it's going to cause problems in your life. But if you maintain good sportsmanship, camaraderie, you know how to win, but you also know how to lose, right? Where you're not a sore loser, but you're also not a prideful and boastful winner. If you eliminate these kind of things, then competition can be fine. It can be fun. It can be motivating. It can be entertaining even to do something like what I'm describing of you know competing robots to fight towards each other. But there's some things like MMA sports, which you know I've watched at different times. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the individuals who are involved in that, but this would be wrong livelihood, and this would also be wrong action because we're causing harm. We're also having a business and living beings. So the type of competition is really important to look at and relate it to things like right action and right livelihood. And then there's things that can be more wholesome as well, where, like I'm describing about robots, you know, two robots, two machines going into an arena and destroying each other. No human being is being hurt in that situation. Uh, So competition can be fine, but there still needs to be a practice of the Eightfold Path with wholesome conduct associated with it. Yes, thank you. We watch
4: battle bots here as well.
1: Yeah, that's a great, great show.
4: We'll we'll go to Jan. She has a question. Thank you, Manal.
7: Um, Thank you, Teacher David. I want to just make sure I'm understanding something correctly. So I was reflecting while you were um, talking. My father fought in World War II, and he killed a number of people. Um, But he lived a very long life. He lived till he was 95 years old. Um, But later in his life, he started a number of charitable organizations and helped a lot of people and devoted himself to that. So would I be right in thinking that he developed a lot of wholesome karma, even though he wasn't on the path? And this is possibly what led to him enjoying such a long life.
1: Exactly. This goes back to the previous chapter with the salt, the lump of salt. So even without him understanding the teachings and being on the path, this natural law of gamma is still affecting us, whether we're aware of it or not. So somewhere in your dad's mind, he decided to practice these wholesome things and he was doing those things. And that would have led to him experiencing the results of having killed in a different way. And Then maybe somebody who continued to do that, because there's people who went off to war and killed as a result of that. And then when they came home, they did wholesome things like your dad. But there's other people who came home from war and they continue to have that anger and hostility and continue to be argumentative, to be taking substances that are heedlessness, being very aggressive and harsh and maybe continuing to kill in their civilian life as well. And that killing at war is going to affect these two people differently. And that's what that previous chapter was referring to. And you can see that in your father's life. And one other thing I would like to share on that, Jan, is paying close attention here to where the Buddha says, repeatedly pursued, developed, and cultivated. That's really important. We were talking about this several classes ago about how you know, there might have been times in our life where we where we did kill, but then when we stop, we're not repeatedly pursuing it, developing it, and cultivating it. That we work to create this wholesomeness. So it's that repeatedly pursuing it, developing it, and cultivating it that is really detrimental to one's mind.
4: Thank you, Teacher David. You're welcome. There doesn't seem to be any more questions.
1: Okay. So, we'll go on to the next chapter, which is chapter 26.
4: Okay, we'll go to Dani.
3: Beings bound by action. One is not a Brahmin by birth, nor by birth a non-Brahmin. By action is one a Brahmin, by action is one a non-Brahmin. For men are farmers by their acts, and by their acts are craftsmen too. And men are merchants by their acts, and by their acts are servants too and men are robbers by their acts, and by their acts are soldiers too. And men are chaplains by their acts, and by their acts are rulers too. So that is how the truly wise see action as it really is. See dependent origination, skilled in action and its results. Action makes the world go round. Action makes its generation turn. Living beings being bound by action, like the chariot built by the lynchman
1: all right thank you donnie so here the buddha is sharing this teaching as a result of what he encountered during his life during his life it was thought that it's based on the family that you're born into about the type of life that you live if you're born into this brahmin class then you're wholesome and you're you know a wonderful person and you have a certain life that you live if you're born into a rich or wealthy family or a royal family same thing very positive lifestyle. But if you're born into kind of a lower class family that's poorer, then people felt like they were destined to bad and unwholesome things in their life. And the Buddha, when he started teaching, he was like, okay, this isn't the way that it truly is. This isn't what truly determines whether you're wholesome or unwholesome. It's not where you're born and what family you're born into. It's based on your actions because it's your actions, your bodily actions, your verbal actions, and your mental actions that are going to produce the results in your life. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, people believe that you could go off and you could pay a Brahmin, and then the Brahmin would go pray for you and your life would get better. But the Buddha's sharing this natural law of Gama in a very detailed sense and explaining that, no, it's all about our actions and what we do. That's what determines whether we're wholesome or unwholesome. And he gives various examples here. And then he sums it up by saying, you know, so that is how the truly wise see action as it really is. Essentially saying it's not based on where you're born or what family you're being born into. It's based on your bodily, verbal, and mental action. And then he talks about dependent origination here, or at least points to it, which is what we studied in volume five, because that's the true description of what leads to discontentedness is dependent origination. And when you're skilled or when you're skillful about your bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions, that's where you experience wholesome results. And this is where he says, okay, actions is what makes the world go round. This is how things all get experienced is based on our actions. And then he uses this analogy of a chariot wheel wheel. And a linchpin is that a chariot is like a vehicle that has wheels on it and it's being pulled by a horse. And there's a linchpin, there's a pin in the middle that kind of keeps these two things together. Without the linchpin, then the chariot doesn't move because there's no connection between the horse and the chariot. So the Buddha is saying actions are like this linchpin, that without these actions, things don't actually happen in your life. So, you always need to be aware and make wise decisions around your bodily, verbal, and mental actions. That's what's going to determine the results in your life. Questions on this chapter? It
4: looks like Marcy has her hand raised. Thank you, Manol. Thank you, Teacher David.
5: Um, dependent origination is that the intention that one arises before they make speech and action?
1: Dependent origination is what the Buddha calls the ultimate truth. In the Four Noble Truths, we talk in kind of a summary form. And we say, okay, it's craving, desire, attachment that leads to discontentedness. That's what causes discontentedness. And you need to eliminate craving, desire, attachment in order to eliminate discontentedness. And it's the Eightfold Path that allows you to train the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And that's like a real summary, just getting started, having this breakthrough to understanding what's causing discontentedness, which is craving, desire, attachment. But what dependent origination is, is this ultimate truth. It's 12 steps that the Buddha is explaining what leads to discontentedness. It's not just craving, desire, attachment. It starts with ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. That's the whole reason why craving exists, because there's no wisdom. There's this unknowing of true reality or this confusion or this misunderstanding in the unenlightened mind. So at the very top of dependent origination, he says, you know, this is the condition of ignorance and then it leads to volitional formations or choices and decisions. And then he says our choices and decisions lead to consciousness and consciousness leads to, you know, he keeps on going all the way through the 12 steps. And you can look in volume five, chapter 14, you'll see the Buddha's words there, and then you'll see my explanations of it, where in the middle of it, he gets to craving and he talks about clinging, but it's basically one condition leads to the next, that condition leads to the next, that condition leads to the next, and he basically shows you exactly step by step by step this causality, this cause and effect of how ignorance and the unknowing of true reality leads to discontentedness, and it leads to continuous rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. So that's why the ultimate goal of this path is, yes, to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, but the ultimate goal is to eliminate ignorance or the unknowing of true reality by acquiring wisdom, by transforming the mind, eliminating ignorance by cultivating wisdom. That's what unravels this whole chain of events, this whole sequence this dependent origination. Discontentedness in birth arises dependent on all these conditions that the Buddha talks about in Volume 5, Chapter 14.
4: Thank you, Teacher David.
1: You're welcome. When you understand dependent origination, that really unlocks so many things about the Buddha's teachings. That's why he calls it the ultimate truth. It just really opens up things and you usually have to study that multiple times get some personal guidance to understand it and really sit with it for a while before it really starts to all click but once you get it boy it really opens your eyes up to a lot of things
4: Uh, there are no other questions for this chapter
1: all right we'll go to chapter 27
5: go to miranda Reflect upon the consequences of actions. Reflect before doing an action. Rahula, when you intend to do an action with the body, you should reflect upon that same bodily action thus. Would this action that I intend to do with the body lead to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both? Is it an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences, with painful results? When you reflect, if you know, This action that I intend to do with the body would lead to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both. It is an unwholesome bodily action with painful consequences, with painful results. Then you should definitely not not do such an action with the body. But when you reflect, if you know this action that I intend to do with the body would not lead to my own harm or to the harm of others, or to the harm of both. It is a wholesome bodily action, wholesome consequences with wholesome results. Then you may do such an action with the body while doing action. Also, Rahula, while you are doing an action with the body, you should reflect upon that same bodily action thus. Does this action that I am doing with the body lead to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both? Is it an unwholesome bodily action, unwholesome consequences with unwholesome results. When you reflect, if you know this action that I am doing with the body leads to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both, it is an unwholesome bodily action, unwholesome consequences with unwholesome results and you should suspend such a bodily action. But when you reflect, if you know this action that I am doing with the body does not lead to my own harm or to the harm of others, or to the harm of both. It is a wholesome bodily action with wholesome consequences and wholesome results. Then you may continue in such a bodily action. And after having done an action. Also, Reverend look. after you have done an action with the body, you should reflect upon that same bodily action thus. Does this action that I have done with the body lead to my own harm, or to the harm of others, or to the harm of both? Was it an unwholesome bodily action with unwholesome consequences, with unwholesome results? When you reflect, if you know this action that I have done with the body leads to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both, it was an unwholesome bodily action with unwholesome consequences, with unwholesome results. Then you should confess such a bodily action, reveal it and lay it open to the teacher or to your wise companions in the holy life Having confessed it, revealed it, and laid it open, you should undertake restraint for the future. But when you reflect, if you know, this action that I have done with the body does not lead to my own harm, or to the harm of others, or to the harm of both. It was a wholesome bodily action with wholesome consequences, wholesome results. You can reside peaceful and joyful, training day and night in wholesome states. A verbal action and a mental action are expounded in the same repetitive phrasing.
1: All right, thank you, Miranda. So, here the Buddha is giving you guidance about how to ensure that you're not causing harm through your bodily, verbal, or mental actions. That prior to doing something, you can kind of reflect on it and go inward and use that wisdom, that inner looking eye to determine, you know, is this wise for me to do or is it not? And in some situations, this is where you might reach out to other members of your community and talk, or you might reach out to your teacher and get help as well as you're learning how to make wiser and wiser decisions through the natural law of karma, that you don't quite maybe have 100% understanding of the natural law of karma yet, you might need some input on this. But if you come to the conclusion that what you're about to do is gonna cause harm, the Buddha's saying, don't do that because that harm is gonna come back to you. And then likewise, while you're doing a certain action, If you realize that it's unwholesome in the moment, the Buddha's like, stop, you know, you can stop that. You can suspend that. You can no longer need to do that because the longer that you do that, it's going to just produce more and more unwholesome results for you. So here the Buddha is talking to his son Rahula. He's saying, you know, if you realize while you're actually doing an action that something is unwholesome, essentially restrain the mind, pull the mind back, Suspend yourself from doing that bodily action, because if you allow yourself to continue forward, it's just going to keep producing more and more unwholesome results there. And then likewise, he says here, if you've already done an action and you realize that it was unwholesome, he's saying you reflect on that and you observe that. He's saying, talk to your teacher. He's saying, you know, lay it open to the teacher or your wise companions in the holy life. That's other members of the community. Because you might need some guidance, you might need some counsel. You're not confessing it just to confess it, you're sharing it. You're not necessarily confessing it like maybe like a Catholic confession where you're giving a penalty or a punishment afterwards, but instead you're going to your teacher or someone you trust, someone who you feel is very close, that is wise, that you can get help from, and you say, hey, this is something that I've done You know, here's some reflections that I'm having. You know, what are your thoughts? You know, what things would you suggest for me? And then this way you can gain the wisdom so that you don't do those again in the future. It's not about making anybody feel bad or guilty or shameful or fearful or anything like that. It's more about you ensuring you get the wisdom that you need so that that doesn't happen in the future. There's going to be certain things that you feel like you don't necessarily need to do that with. But in certain situations, even when you feel like your mind is fully looked at a certain situation and you fully understand it, there's still going to be situations where it's wise for you to talk to your teacher or other people in the community and get input and get feedback just to be sure that you've looked at all angles of it and you've gotten the help that you need so that now you better understand the natural law of gamma and you're less likely to make unwise decisions in the future. And the Buddha talked about this same way for verbal action and mental action, not just bodily action. And then this is where he also says, you can reside peaceful and joyful, training day and night in wholesome states. So this is where you understand that your path to enlightenment is not just meditation. All too often, people think that to get to enlightenment, you just need to sit and meditate. But there's all this other work that you need to be doing outside of meditation, which is described as part of the Eightfold Path. And the Buddha is explaining it here, too, that you know, before doing an action, while doing an action, and after doing an action, you can be reflecting and trying to determine, was this wise? Was this wholesome? Eventually, you do that enough where the mind understands the natural law of gamma so well that you can just practice these teachings and it's effortless. It's first nature now for you to just make wise decisions all the time and you're experiencing lots of wholesomeness in your life because you've ramped up your practice and you're now practicing in a very wholesome way. But you've got to do the work in order to get there. And then once you do, it's just effortless. You understand this natural law so well. And the way that you get to that point is by doing what the Buddha is explaining here. Reflect before while doing an action and then afterwards as well. Questions on this chapter?
4: Go to Jan. Thank you, Manal. Thank
7: you, Teacher David. Um, I have a question about situations where it um, seems that um, one might do something that would harm one person, but would actually save multiple other people from harm.
1: Can you give me an example?
7: Yes. so it comes up quite often at my workplace where um someone will um will speak up that there's a a situation that's um causing um potential harm to people Um, so this is this has happened with me um i teach art in an art studio there are harmful art materials that can be used that will harm your body. They can give you cancer. They can cause asthma attacks. Um, they could cause um, you know, multiple chronic medical issues. And so I've been in the situation of having to um, report somebody who's brought these damaging chemicals into the shared space. So I feel that you know, it's harming the person that I'm reporting. They're getting in trouble. Um, but if we allow the person to bring these harmful chemicals into the space, it's going to harm multiple people, all the other people who are using the space, the teachers and students. Um, and this has come up multiple times. Um, so I have this situation I feel that I'm putting, being put in where I'm, I'm having to decide, um, you know, that it, I, I need to protect the majority of people And so the one person who is going to get in trouble is going to get in trouble. But it's more important to protect the vast majority of people in the space.
1: Okay, I understand. Does that make sense? Yep, makes complete sense. So in that situation, you're not the one causing the harm. You're just sharing with a supervisor or somebody else what has transpired in the art studio. The person who's causing the harm is the person who brought the chemicals into the space. They're the ones causing the harm. And now if they get harmed as a result of you sharing this information, that's their karma coming back to them. That was the result of their decisions. Your decision is there's a substance in the art studio that's going to cause harm to people. Let me report that to somebody so that proper decisions can be made to ensure this doesn't happen in the future that's your decision. That's a wholesome decision. That's loving kindness. That's compassion. Loving kindness is this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, and compassion is concern for others' misfortune. So in that situation, you're practicing wholesome qualities. The other person wasn't practicing loving kindness and compassion, and that's why when you practice loving kindness and compassion by reporting it, that person is going to potentially incur the harmful results of their decisions. But you're not causing harm in that situation. You're actually solving a problem.
4: Thank you. That's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Thank you, teacher David. You're welcome. There are no other questions for this chapter.
1: All right, let's move on to chapter 28. There we go.
3: Fulfilling the goal of aestheticism. Monks, this is the lowest form of livelihood. That is, gathering alms food. In the world, this is a term of abuse. You alms food gatherer, you roam about with a bagging bowl in your hand. And yet, monks, clansmen intent on the wholesome take up that way of life for a valid reason. It is not because they have been driven to it by kings that they do so, nor because they have been driven to it by thieves, nor only to debt, nor from fear, nor to learn a livelihood. But they do so with a thought. I am immersed in birth, aging and death, in sorrow, grief, pain, displeasure, and despair. I am immersed in discontentedness, oppressed by discontentedness. Perhaps an ending of this entire mess of discontentedness may be attained. It is in such a way, monks, that this householder has gone forth, yet he is craving inflamed by desire for sensual pleasures, with a mind full of ill will, with intentions corrupted by hate, wild minded lacking clear comprehension, unconcentrated, scattered brain, loose in its base senses. Just as wood from a funeral bonfire, burning at both ends and smeared with excrement in the middle, cannot be used as timber either in the village or in the forest. In just such a way do I speak about this person, He has missed out on the enjoyments of a household holder, yet he does not fulfill the goal of asceticism.
1: Okay, thank you, Donnie. So, this is really helpful and can help you with a lot of things, this short little teaching here. One of the things that we're often taught in society is that aesthetics and Brahmin, you know, ordained practitioners at the highest part of society and they should be enormously respected and put up at the highest part of society. Well, the Buddha is explaining to you right here that he actually didn't see it that way. He sees it as being ordained is the lowest form of livelihood. Because remember, he was a royal member of the royal family, went from being a prince to being a roaming aesthetic to being this monk who's accepting donations of food off the street. And this was a way to help eliminate ego. eliminate arrogance and pride. So not that we should be disrespectful or impolite to us folks who are choosing to live this particular lifestyle, but at the same time, we shouldn't aspire to put these people up really high because it only produces conceit in our own mind, and it can also produce conceit in other people's minds too. So we should look at all beings as being equal, not necessarily low or high, but everyone being equal the Buddha's sharing here, that he considers it to be the lowest form of livelihood, and that going into this form of livelihood of sharing these teachings and being ordained, they're not being forced to do that. They're moving into being ordained based on their own choices. It's not kings or thieves or because they owe debt or that they're fearful or that they should be interested to earn a livelihood, because particularly in the Buddha's lifetime, They weren't allowed to have silver and gold they weren't allowed to accumulate wealth and even today if an ordained practitioner is accumulating wealth they're oftentimes reviewed by their peers and that's not something that is accepted in terms of the ordained lifestyle so somebody who's entering into being ordained or sharing these teachings in the way that we do by just functioning off of donations it's not something that anyone's forced us to do It's not something we're doing in order to earn a livelihood. We're doing it at our own free will. And the reason why someone might choose to ordain or someone might choose to give up this life is because they're immersed in this discontentedness. They're continuing to be reborn over and over and over again, experiencing all this discontentedness. You wouldn't have to become ordained. You wouldn't have to teach these teachings in order to get to enlightenment. But the Buddha is just explaining in terms of ordained practitioners, this particular teaching is really focused on that, is the reason why people should ordain is because they're looking to end discontentedness. That's the only reason during the lifetime of the Buddha. Nowadays, people tend to ordain for all different kinds of reasons. There's lots of different reasons why someone might choose to ordain. But in terms of what the Buddha intended and what would be wholesome and what would produce the best results is if somebody ordains in order to eliminate discontentedness. Or in other words, someone ordains in order to attain enlightenment. That's the only reason to ordain is to attain enlightenment. And of course, like I mentioned, you can still attain enlightenment from the household life. It's just two different lifestyles. But in terms of if someone is going to ordain, it's a free will choice. Nobody's forcing them to do it. They're not doing it to make money. Someone should ordain in order to eliminate discontentedness. And then the Buddha says okay, this person has ordained, but yet their mind is full of craving. They have this inflamed desire for sensual pleasures. Their mind is full of ill will. They're corrupted by hate, muddle-minded, lacking concentration and comprehension. They're scatterblend, loose in their sense bases, meaning they don't have control. They're not restraining their sense bases. Essentially, what he's describing is someone who is ordained, but they're not actually learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings. They're not actively cultivating their mind. They've ordained. They're living off the donations of household practitioners, but they're not actively improving their practice. And then this last paragraph, he's basically saying this person is essentially useless. This person is not fulfilling the goal of ordaining, much like a piece of wood that is smeared with feces in the middle, and then it's on fire on both ends. You can't use this piece of timber for a fire in the forest or in a village or anything like this, that this piece of wood is basically useless because you can't pick it up in the middle because it's got feces on it. And you can't pick it up on the ends because it's on fire. So basically this timber, this log is useless and it's not going to meet its ultimate goal of being used in a fire. And the Buddha is explaining the same thing as someone who ordains based on their own choices, who still has craving, desire, attachment, who is having this ill will, who has this ignorance, this unknowing a true reality. They're not actively training their mind. He's saying, you know, you're, you're basically wasting away here. You might as well just go back to the household life rather than continuing to function in this way where you're not fulfilling the goals of an ordained life. So that's what he's explaining here. So you might try to relate this to your life, right? Like if you're going to show up to class, if you're going to read books, if you're going to do this work along this path, you know, you would like to be dedicated and diligent in your practice rather than allowing this to go to waste is really use this life to get dedicated to your practice and don't allow this time, effort, energy and resources that you're dedicating towards your practice. Don't allow the mind to become complacent is essentially what the Buddha is getting at here. So if you've been learning for a little while, but you're not quite meditating, or you're not quite practicing generosity, or you know, you're know you not quite practicing right speech, and you're not really making any efforts in that regard, then your mind's kind of complacent. So the Buddha is saying, okay, let's be dedicated, let's be determined, let's be diligent, and actively walk this path. That would be someone who's really fulfilling the goals of this spiritual life or this path to enlightenment. Any questions on this chapter?
4: There are no questions for this chapter.
1: All right. We'll move on to chapter 29.
4: We'll go to Nick.
1: Thank you, Manon. Give gifts to
6: the community. My family gives gifts, Venerable Sir, and those gifts are given to monks who are Arahants or on the path to arahantship, Those who are forest dwellers, alms food collectors, and wearers of rag robes. Sense householder, you are a household practitioner enjoying sensual pleasures, living at home in a house full of children, using sandalwood from Kasi, wearing garlands and scents and ointments, and receiving gold and silver. It is difficult for you to know these are arahants, or enlightened beings, or on the path to henship or enlightenment if householder a monk who is a forest dweller is restless puffed up conceited talkative rambling in his talk muddle-minded lacking clear comprehension unconcentrated with a wandering mind with loose sense bases then in this respect he is blameworthy responsible for wrongdoing But if a monk who is a forest dweller is not restless, puffed up and conceited is not talkative and rambling in his talk, but has mindfulness established clearly comprehends is concentrated with singleness of mind, with restrained sense bases, Then in this respect, he is praiseworthy, deserving of admiration commendable. If a monk who resides on the outskirts of a village if a monk who is an alms food collector, if a monk who accepts invitations to meals, if a monk who wears rag robes, or if a monk who wears robes given by householders, is restless, puffed up, conceited, talkative, rambling in his talk, muddle-minded, lacking clear comprehension, unconcentrated, with a wandering mind, with loose sense bases, then in this respect, he is blameworthy. But if a monk who resides on the outskirts of a village, if a monk who is an alms food collector, if a monk who accepts invitations to meals, if a monk who wears rag robes, or if a monk who wears robes given by householders is not restless, puffed up and conceited, is not talkative and rambling in his talk, but has mindfulness established, clearly comprehends, is concentrated with singleness of mind with restrained sense bases then in this respect he is praise praiseworthy come now householder give gifts to the community when you give gifts to the community your mind will be confident when your mind is confident with the breakup of the body after death you will be reborn in a good destination in a heavenly world venerable sir From today onward, I will give gifts to the
1: community. All right. Thank you, uh, Nick. So here, this is one of those teachings that you definitely shouldn't take in isolation. None of the Buddhist teachings I suggest that you look at in isolation, but you need to look at the bigger picture. The Buddha talks at different times in other parts of his teachings about giving gifts to the community and how that's helpful for your own practice of generosity. He even gives guidance of saying that you should take care of yourself, your family, your relatives, uh, your workers, things like this. And then ultimately, as there's additional funds, then that's where you give gifts to the community. And he puts himself as last as somebody to give gifts to. And then when he talks in other parts of his teachings about giving gifts to the community, he doesn't talk about just giving it to everybody. He talks about finding virtuous practitioners. Because if you can imagine, during the lifetime of an actual Buddha, as he was teaching more and more, his community would have been in the thousands and thousands and thousands of people who were practicing these teachings and learning with an actual Buddha. So what do you encourage people to do in other parts of his teachings is find the virtuous practitioners, those who are practicing really well. Because giving those people gifts will ensure that the continuation of the teachings go on. Whereas if there's like an ordained practitioner, like in the previous chapter, that is maybe smoking cigarettes, using alcohol, maybe having sex behind people's backs, not even though they're supposed to be practicing celibacy, they're having sex with different people and all these other things that are unwholesome. If you're making offerings to non-virtuous ordained practitioners, then you're supporting that. So the Buddha encourages us to give gifts to virtuous practitioners who are in those first four stages of enlightenment, of stream entry, once returner, non-returner, and arahant, or they're practicing in that regard. And here he's focusing on people who are arahants or people who are practicing to become an arahant, meaning they're now a non-returner and they're making their way to arahantship. And he's saying, okay, you know, if you would like to make offerings to enlightened beings and people who are close to enlightenment, he's saying here that, okay, householder, you're not going to understand how to figure out if somebody is enlightened or if somebody's close to enlightenment, because this person uh, that he's talking to isn't necessarily well developed in their practice. So they're not going to necessarily know who to give gifts to. So the Buddha is giving guidance of who to actually give a gift to. He's saying, okay, if somebody is restless, if they're puffed up, if they're conceited, if they're talkative, if they're rambling in their talk, if they're muddle-minded, if they're lacking clear comprehension, if they're unconcentrated, if their mind is wandering all over the place, if their sense bases are unrestrained or loose— this person is blameworthy. They're responsible for wrongdoing. That's why their mind is in that condition. But then he says, okay, if you've come across the practitioner who is not restless, who's not puffed up, who's not conceited, who's not talkative, who's not rambling or having idle chatter, but has mindfulness, awareness of mind well-established, and they have clear comprehension they're concentrated they're practicing singleness of mind and their sense bases are restrained this is a person who's practicing really well and he's saying that's the person to give your gift to so he's helping to give kind of some criteria of who you should give gifts to and and who not and then he just encourages people to do that because he knows that it's going to help their practice a household practitioner making offerings To people who are sharing these teachings, these teachings are then going to be coming into the world more and more. But you should be looking at the individual's practice, not in a judgmental way, but wise decisions. You know, here's this one practitioner who's sharing these teachings in the world, who's unrestrained, unconcentrated, talkative, rambling, not really practicing the teachings closely. And then here's another one who's practicing the teachings really closely, sharing the teachings in the world, helping lots of people. This is the person that the Buddha is saying, okay, give gifts to that person. Questions on this chapter?
4: Yes, teacher David. Um, So you can understand uh, when respect is given to someone who is uh, praiseworthy. In contrast to that, if we look at the word blameworthy that's used Um, I'm uh, a little bit conflicted with this because, um, you know, this, um, hints at judgment maybe, um, and blamelessness is one of the words that popped in my mind when I looked at blameworthy. Um, you know, one of the ideas, um, which we try to follow for non-judgment is blamelessness. So I'm finding it a conflict seeing this word.
1: Yeah, this is the word that the original translator used for here. I put in this one here in parentheses, you know, responsible for wrongdoing. I think that's probably a better word to use there. So this word blameworthy, when you look it up, this is what it means. It means responsible for wrongdoing. So the root word is blame, like we're blaming somebody for something. But that's not what the Buddha is actually sharing here. What he's truly sharing is this responsible for wrongdoing, that they're not truly developing their practice well. That's what he's talking about here. So this, this word, I think the word blame is probably, uh, you know, uh, you're looking at that. But if you look at what that really means, is it means responsible for wrongdoing. It's not that we're actually blaming this person or looking down on them or judging them in any way. It's just all about, you know, who's doing really wonderful things for their own practice and for the world and who's not. And he's encouraging you to provide gifts to people who are doing wholesome things in the world, deserving of admiration and commendable.
4: And using wise discernment in um, going ahead to... Um, for you know, understand who is who.
1: Exactly. And not looking down on the person who isn't really practicing well. You know, we don't look down on them. We don't think they're a bad person. We have concern for their misfortune or compassion. We have loving kindness for them, this genuine interest in seeing them be well. But in terms of, you know, our limited resources, where are we going to provide the gift? And if we provide the gift over here with the person who's deserving of admiration and commendable, who's doing wonderful things for their own practice and sharing the teachings with other people, then that's what we're encouraging. But if we share the gift over here with our limited resources, with this person who's into unwholesomeness, then that's what we're supporting. Um, So doing that without judgment and just making a wise decision of where's the best place to send my resources to help Myself for generosity, but also to help the world to continue to experience the benefit of these teachings coming into the world.
4: Yes, thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. You're welcome. It doesn't look
4: like there are any questions for this chapter.
1: All right, so we just have one more chapter, chapter 30.
4: Do not prevent another from giving. Vacha, one who prevents another from giving a gift creates an obstruction and stumbling block for three people. What three? He creates an obstruction to one, the donors acquiring of merit, two, to the recipients gaining a gift, and three, already he has harmed and injured himself. One who prevents another from giving gift creates an obstruction and stumbling block for these three people. But actually, I say that one acquires merit even if one throws away dishwashing water in a refuse, refuse dump or cesspit with the thought, may the living thing." living beings here sustain themselves with this how much more then does one acquire merit when one gives to human beings however i say that what is given to one a virtuous behavior is more fruitful than what is given to an unwholesome person and the most worthy recipient is one who has abandoned five factors and possesses five factors what five factors has he abandoned one sensual desire two ill will three complacency four restlessness and worry, and five, doubt. These are the five factors that he has abandoned. And what five factors does he possess? One, the virtuous behavior, two, concentration, three, wisdom, four, liberation, and five, wisdom and vision of liberation of one beyond training. These are the five factors that he possesses. It is in such a way, I say, that what is given to one who has abandoned five factors and possesses five factors is very fruitful.
1: Okay. Thank you, Manal. So here, the Buddha is giving you some guidance, again, of uh, one, you know, don't prevent people from giving a gift. So if somebody is sharing with you that they're going to make an offering or they're going to give a gift, the Buddha is saying, you know, don't prevent that person from doing so. Because if you do, you're causing harm. You're causing harm in terms of the donor. That person isn't able to practice generosity. So they're not able to train the mind to let go and eliminate craving, desire, attachment. They're not able to produce this merit. You would also be harming the recipient, the person who is actually receiving the gift. And then you would also be harming yourself as well because this gift isn't being shared. So those benefits aren't accumulating for the donor and the recipient. And then the Buddha gives some guidance on, you know, if you even just threw out some dishwater with the interest in having these animals or insects benefit from it. You know, there's even some benefit with that. But the Buddha is saying, okay, you know, if you actually give a gift to human beings, it actually has so much more benefit than even just throwing out this dishwater to insects or animals, you know, outside. And then the Buddha gives guidance of who should you give gifts to and again this shouldn't be taken in isolation because he has other teachings where he explains these type of things too this is just one aspect of it where he says that you should give gifts to someone who has abandoned these five hindrances we talked about these last week about a week and a half ago two weeks ago Related to in the group learning program, we talked about the hindrance of central desire, ill will, complacency, restlessness, and worry and doubt, and that these five things will hinder somebody from attaining enlightenment. So the Buddha is saying, okay, if you're looking for enlightened beings in order to make your offering to, which would produce the most benefit, then look for somebody who doesn't have these five things because if they've eliminated these five things, then that person has removed the obstacles and hindrances to enlightenment, so that would be a person to be worthy of giving a gift to. And then he gives other guidance in terms of what would they be practicing. They would have this virtuous behavior, this moral conduct. You would see right speech, right action, right livelihood. You would also see this person have concentration. Their mind would be clear. They would have focus, concentration, clarity of mind. They would have deep memory. They would also have this wisdom that they would be able to share with you and others. And this wisdom coming into the world would help beings to understand this path and continue to evolve. Number four is liberation. This is someone who's actually enlightened that they no longer experience discontentedness. So if you see people experiencing discontentedness, then you know that they're not enlightened. An enlightened being isn't going to be angry, sad, sorrowful, have irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. They're not gonna have these conditioned pleasant feelings, conditioned painful feelings, or conditioned feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, their mind is free. It's liberated from those strong feelings. And then number five is wisdom and vision of liberation, of one beyond training. What this means is someone who has the wisdom and can see clearly the path to liberation. This person is beyond training. They're enlightened. They're completely enlightened. They are able to speak about the teachings with ease. They can see the path very clearly. They can explain the path to other people. They can guide other people along the path this person is beyond training. And the Buddha's saying, ah, this is the person to give a gift to because it's going to be very fruitful because by supporting that person, that person's bringing the teachings into the world to help countless people as part of their practice. They now are beyond training. So now they're in this particular situation, they're choosing to teach. Not every enlightened being is going to teach. But enlightened beings who do decide to teach, they're going to be able to help a lot of people in their life because they have this virtuous behavior to be a role model. They have this concentration, this wisdom, their mind is liberated, and they have the wisdom and vision of the path to liberation. And they're beyond training. And the Buddha says, this is the way to produce the most benefit with your gift. Questions on this chapter?
4: There are no questions in this
1: chapter. All right. Well, we're all done for today's class. Next week, what we're going to be doing is finishing out this book. This goes from chapters 31 to 41. And we'll be done with this book and we'll be moving on two weeks from now into volume nine. So if you would like to read before class, you would read chapters 31 to 41. We have about 11 chapters we'll study next week as part of our class, and you can ask any questions that you like. Tomorrow in the group learning program, which is Sunday, we're going to be doing a three-part series starting with tomorrow on the Eightfold Path. So if you would like to join and participate in the group learning program, we're going to be discussing the Four Noble Truths as part of Right View. We're also going to be discussing the three universal truths, of course, because that's a building block for the four noble truths. And then we're also going to be discussing right intention. We're only going to be discussing right view and right intention in tomorrow's class so that we really can penetrate into that section of the Eightfold Path. And then the subsequent Sundays, we're going to do the other sections of the Eightfold Path. So this will allow you to get a really deep understanding of the Eightfold Path using the words of the Buddha. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be starting a four-part series of Breathing Mindfulness Meditation, where I'll build you up from the beginning and help you to understand Breathing Mindfulness Meditation and really develop your practice over this four-part series. So thank you all for joining for today's class. I'll see you either next Saturday or maybe on Sunday and or Wednesday of the group learning program. Have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadee